Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Your host, Andrew, and Michael Leyland. I missed you last week. Did you? Yeah. I'd do something on my own. Oh, didn't. It was a bit masturbatory. <laughs> ew. The connotations, ew. <laughs> I recorded an episode all on my own. I was all by myself. <laughs> so roadry. <laughs> Alone again, naturally. How many other songs can we squeeze into? No, I well, I, I had a hoot last week. You had a hoot and a half. I did. Yes. What were you doing at this time last week? This time last week. This very time last week. At this very time at last this week. This very moment last week. I, I was instead I, of a sassy with me recording a show, so we're now one behind. I was sad. so we don't have a lag. Yeah. So we can't afford <laughs> to make another mess because of you. Very, very comfortably sat in my pajamas. In your PJs. In my PJs. Hmm. On a girl's bed. Oh, you will get cooties! <laughs> you know what them girls are like? They are nasty. I know. Nasty girl, you nasty girls. Uh, uh. Nasty's the word. Well, is it really? What were you doing? What were what, 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 what you doing? Vicarious living through my son. What, what were you doing? <laughs> Playing Cards Against Humanity. No, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> cards Against Humanity is just wrong. Our, our teacher came in to check up on us. Did she really? She did. Is that allowed? She said, oh, 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 I'm playing Cards Against Humanity. My friends would play this. What actually is it? So we, we played it. Did you explain it to her? Well, just to give her a, a full understanding of it, I played down a card that said the word boner. Oh, no! And specifically... Was it a 1950s Batman comic book? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Joker's boner. It was, yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that had three X's next I to it. I am such a child. <laughs> so, yeah, so you're back. Back again. I am, yeah. Shady's back. back Tell in, a friend. Back in bloody old England. Back in black. Merry, merry old England. Yeah, With yeah. pearly Charlie. Yeah. And the coals of Manchester. Happy as I am to see you, Batman! Whereas last week I was in the city of canals that smelt an awful lot like California <laughs> after 10 o'clock. <laughs> Did it not smell like drains? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, hello! Hello. We're getting crap at that. We just <laughs> we forget that we, we, we're doing this. Oh, so yeah, we yeah. should introduce ourselves. But the title bit does all that. Because your does. mum does it. It does it for us. It does. So that we can, so that we can just get into it. And do what we're doing into for this people. night! We're doing wacky stuff for the next couple of weeks, just mm-hmm. to keep our hand in, in the wacky well, stuff. I'm doing wacky. You're, you're, you're bringing the wacky. I'm doing left field this week and next week, whilst you're still looking left. You're doing I'm left field, a, eh? I'm bringing in a right the field. The singer. Yes. Or was that wig field? No, it was left field, wasn't it? Was it? Yeah. I don't know. I'm not allowed to say anything. The tabloids might get a hold of it. <laughs> Should we do an email? Okay. Shall we leap into the sack? Now, because we have had a week off in terms of recording, yeah. the lovely listeners will not have missed a beat, for we prepared for you being aware for a week. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but the lovely uh, email sack has a couple of emails in it. And uh, it's a huge email. Because it's from Michael Burley. Yeah. So it's huge! It is. Hello, Michael. Leylands! You have to say it like Brian Blessed. Leylands! <laughs> Bailey's alive! Like that. That's pretty good, isn't it? I'm a big fan of Brian Blessed. It's like Brian Blessed was sat right next to it, it, It's almost like he was... I don't yeah. have the beard, do I? No. I don't have the... the you're, you're on your way, though. I'm on my way there at the minute, but I think I'll be sharing this off tomorrow. I don't do beards. I, I kind of like it, but I can never grow it. No. Just a little bit of fluff. <laughs> what? That's, That's not, not a knife. <laughs> That's no beard. That's a Brian Blessed. Yeah, I, I think you're right, old man. That's no beard. That's a 12-year-old trying to act grown up. I think we're going to need a bigger beard. <laughs> Shall we get over Michael's email? Yeah. <laughs> Every time we do that, and I'm sure the lovely listeners must think that we actually, we set that up. Yeah, yeah. We start the email and then go off on a tangent. And we don't, do we? It's more... It's never planned. No. We need obligatory tangents now. We need, we need scripted tangents. <laughs> like our scripted ad-libs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Michael says, well, I'm working the so-called Iron Man shift at work. Meaning I work 12 and a half hours on Sunday as the only manager with the trade-off being that I get other Sundays off, which has grown tiresome over the past six months, let me tell you. So, of course, I'm taking my time out to email you. This is called Rebellion. Or something. Were you recruited by a funny woman in white with the danishes <laughs> on her head? To send emails yeah. at work time. Did she send it on a USB R2-D2 stick? <laughs> Was it the message saying, help me, Michael Bailey, you're my only hope? That would be quite cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then off he goes to save the world or something. Save the world from scumbags making yeah. you work Sunday. Yeah. Whoa, scum. Anyway, the final two chapters of JL Avengers. I was actually saving this episode for the shift I'm working on now. I had to have something to look forward to. And the newest Hey Kids seemed like the way to go. I want to kick this off with a minor correction. The original two-page spread that showed all of the DC heroes that would be taking up the slack whilst Diana had her walkabout, Bruce goes off to hang out with Dick and Tim, and Clark goes off being all powerless, was not drawn by Jerry Ordway. Normally I would not mention such things, but the words Jerry Ordway and wasn't very good cause a 404 error in my brain. <laughs> I'm not sure who the original artist was, but it wasn't Ordway. It was either Joe Bennett or Ivan Rice. Looking at the original, it's not that bad, but when compared to Perez, most artists are going to come up short. And Derek well, Crabb Facebooked us yeah. uh, and said that it was Joe Bennett. Well, I looked it up. And did you? Uh, I did, and yes, it was Joe Bennett. I only thought of Jerry Ordway because I knew he was the other artist on Infinite Crisis who wasn't Ivan Rees. So. Right. Such, so he sprung to mind first. Right, so are you going to apologise for saying the words Jerry Audrey and not very good and causing Michael's brain to go, does not compute! Does not compute! I didn't say Jerry Audrey just wasn't very good, I said that piece of art wasn't very good and it could have been Jerry Audrey. Oh, that's a, very, that's a very politician way of getting yourself out of trouble. Yeah, yeah. I think, by actually <laughs> denying what you said and saying what you said <laughs> was actually different to what people actually heard. Yeah. Very good. You've got the makings of a politician. I applaud you, except I will disown you yeah. if you decide to become that. Michael continues, the wrap-up to your coverage was superb. I really can't add anything else to what you said, and it was nice to hear both of you get so excited over the story. The only thing I can think to comment on is Andy's statements about crisis at the end of the episode. 
Sure, I could argue with Michael's idea that long hair automatically means mullet, but I know I'm right, so no need to get into it. Have if I said something casual and offhand again? If it's long in the back but short at the front, that's I, a I don't think he had long hair at the back and short at the front. I think he had long hair. Essentially what you've got at the minute. You can put your hair in a ponytail. You're right? right, I can. But Were you a hipster douchebag? <laughs> but you can't do that if you've got a mullet. So that's the point that we're but trying to make. Yeah, but isn't it one of those little tiny ponytails that look a bit douchebaggy? No, I, I know it. That's yeah. right, fair enough. I know it might have been a while since you were able to put your hair in a ponytail, but. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you wound me. You cut me to the. Just because you've been away for a week and sat in a woman's bedroom playing cards against humanity does not give you the right to come back here and abuse your father. <laughs> bit of how's your father? Uh, anyway. I could abuse you before I went away, what change? <laughs> yeah, but not like that. Yeah, well. Not in a Rolf Harris kind of way. <laughs> oh. Hey, he's been convicted and sent down. We can actually say stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So. Now that he can uh, he can't play with his digits. Shut up! <laughs> two little boys had two little size. <laughs> it's the crisis thing that made me raise an eyebrow. Uh, was this a Clarkson offhand comment again? <laughs> I understand Andy's feelings about the crisis, I really do, but comparing JL Avengers to Crisis is grossly unfair. For one thing, you are comparing a story that was designed to have a lasting ramifications to a story that was designed to be a one-off, and, with the exception of the Syndicate Rules story in JLA, would never be referenced again. Yes, JL Avengers is a good story, and it's fun, but it exists in its own four issues, and that's it. By design, the story was supposed to be a one-off. Crisis had a purpose. We can argue about whether it was a good idea all day long, preferably over a pint. Hey, if you're buying, mate, I'm I'm there. But at the end of the day, it can't be argued that Wolf and Company went into this with an idea that had a lasting impact on the DCU. Again, the fact that people came afterwards and messed it up is not the fault of Crisis. I just think that comparing the two stories and saying one is better than the other is comparing apples and oranges. It's fur, I suppose, because Perez is involved in both. But beyond that, they had two different reasons to be. I see, I don't know, see we're going to have a minor disagreement again. I think it's perfectly fair for me to say I think JLA Avengers is better than Crisis. Because that's just me saying, I think that JLA is better than Crisis and I preferred it. And that's taking the story into account instead of the reasons why it exists. Hmm. Um, Should should we finally lay this Crisis stuff to bed? Right. Because I do get the impression, you were aware last week, Hmm. but I do get the impression that some people, judging by some Facebook comments and some stuff that Michael has said as well, that people think I don't like Crisis on Infinite Earths. Well, you, right. you bought it, like, what, three different times? Only twice. Oh, okay. Which we're going to go into now. For one, me saying I prefer JL Avengers to Crisis on Infinite Earths is not me saying I don't like Crisis on Infinite Earths. I, this is the secret origin of Andrew and Crisis on Infinite Earths. You see yeah. what I did there? You yeah. like that? Yeah. For whatever reason, I did not read Crisis when it came out in 1985. Now, I don't know whose reason or what that reason is. I'm pretty sure it's not to score touchdowns. <laughs> but I'm almost positive... That, that it is because Crisis on Infinite Earths did not receive newsstand distribution in the United Kingdom. Or certainly, it did not have newsstand distribution where I bought my comics. And at that point, I was still buying comics from newsagents. I wasn't going to comic book stores every week. You could still buy comics in yeah. newsagents. And Crisis wasn't one of them, so I didn't read it. By the time Crisis had been and gone... I'd seen pages from it in stuff like Comic Scene and Amazing Heroes, fanzines like that. And I knew everything that happened in it. Yeah. 
I'd seen panels and pages and it was discussed as you might expect. So I never read it. Yeah. This was also the era of everything not getting an instant trade paperback. If you missed those 12 issues of Crisis, it was gone. Yeah. Would have thought I would have finally got around to it in the late 80s, early 90s. But by that point, I was in my pretentious vertigo phase. Mm-hmm. And I was reading Sebastian Irwin, Enigma, and Sandman, and Preacher. And I wasn't reading superhero stuff, so it kind of slid me by. By the time it did eventually get a trade paperback release, which was 97, 98-ish, I know I bought it in Worlds Apart in yeah. Liverpool, and I know we had you. So that will have been the late 90s. Won't it? And I distinctly remember reading that trade paperback in the doctor's surgery waiting for your mum to come out. Right. We went up to the doctor's either because of an appointment with you right. or an appointment with your mum and I sat in the doctor's reading crisis while she was in there doing whatever it was she was doing. Being so I do remember that. You. Yeah, being typically me. I sat there reading comics while, you know, major life and death surgery yeah, was yeah. going on. But I was reading comics, so that's okay. Loved it. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Put it back on the shelf. Never thought about it again. Never read it again. Yeah. I bought the Omnibus, no, Absolute, Absolute. I bought the Absolute two, three years ago? Mm. It's during the lifespan of this show, wasn't it? Yeah, it was... It was 60% off, wasn't it? Because it was at Manchester, you got the Sandman as well. Yeah, and it was 60% off, so it was something like £35. Yeah. And so was your Sandman one, and I only had £60 on me. Mm. And I said to the guy, will you take 60 for both of these? And he said, yes. So I got both those Absolutes for 60 quid. So essentially, it's buy one, get one free, wasn't it? for all intents and purposes. Put it on the shelf, never read it. Mm. I've just recently dug it back out oh, because I've, of Tales of the JSA. I've gone through them all again, all your absolutes. And started reading it again, and I'm now three or four issues into it. Mm. I'm enjoying it just as much as I did the first time around, but I enjoy JLA Avengers more for all the reasons Michael gives them. It's a yeah. self-contained story, not designed to have a follow-up. And not ruined by the fact that it's had a follow-up by lesser creators later on, unlike yeah. Crisis. So, see, I don't think we're actually disagreeing. Um, I, I disagree. Well, we are disagreeing, aren't we? Because I disagree. You can you can compare JLA Avengers to Crisis in the sense that I can say I prefer JLA Avengers. Mm. I'm not saying JLA Avengers is better you from a, yeah. a, an, an analytical point of view. I think it's better as a reading experience, and the enjoyment I get from it is... I get more enjoyment from that than I get from Crisis, which is not to say I don't like Crisis. Okay? okay. I can like Marathon Snicker Bars, and I can like Mars Bars, and I can say I actually prefer Snickers Bars. That doesn't mean I don't like Mars Bars. Okay. Are we, are we copacetic? <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, I remember the Crisis Tree people just because of the Alex Ross cover. Yeah, well, it, that's that's in the absolute, isn't it's it? It's the um, box. Yeah, it's I mean, box. It doesn't look as good as a box, so yeah. that's a bit... Yeah, Yeah, because when I bought the absolute, I gave that trade paper back to Luke. Yeah. I paid it forward, which I tend to do. I always knew Crisis existed just because of the cover. I'd never read it, but I knew the cover. Yeah, the cover's pretty good. Because I'm a, I'm a big Alex Ross fan. Yes. Well, you've now read Absolute Crisis on Infinite Earths, haven't you? I've read Crisis, yeah. I don't think I've read the Absolute. Did you read the paperback? Yeah. Oh, right, okay. Because I'm the kind of guy, who, if I'm going to read Final Crisis, I have to go back to... Yes, you're one of them. Now, if I'm going to read this, I have to read this, 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 and this <laughs> before I read the thing I want to read. And you get your little book out and you make a little checklist. Yeah, Alright, okay, there's no need to start with the low blows. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're okay doing that to me, but I cannot reciprocate. Has maturity not given you a shield to a. What is this maturity of which you speak? <laughs> 
I was going to say age, but I didn't want to obscure again. <laughs> age, maturity. <laughs> the words, they're coming out, they're in English, but I'm not quite understanding their, uh, their yeah. context. Should we wrap up Mike's era? Oh. Uh, as for Zero Hour, continues Mike, I can't argue with your comments that much. It had good intentions, but I will agree with Andy that some of the decisions afterwards were questionable, especially the Batman thing. And unlike Crisis, I think those decisions were made on the fly with the editors and creators not really thinking them through. Also, unlike Crisis, the bad ideas were a direct result of the event instead of something happening three or four years down the line. The correlation between bad idea and story was tighter. Whilst I hold that DC was stronger after Crisis, for a time at any rate, Zero Zero Hour can be blamed for more of the problems that came after it than Crisis can. Splitting hers, possibly. But I stand by my statement. Looking forward to the next slate of episodes. Hope all is well. Love to the family. Your mate, Mikey Mike B. And Michael is a Superman apologist, it says so in his signature. Mm -hmm. And he has a blog on the Fortress of Burlitude. And he is the host of views from the long box with appearances by some northern chanter and Bailey's Batman podcast and co-host of From Crisis to Crisis our Superman podcast and co-host of Tales of the Justice Society of America and co-host of Radio KAL Live every Monday night at 10.30 EST and a partridge in a portrait that was quite epic. It was. Thank you, Michael, for emailing it. Do you think the DCU would still be the same if Zero Hour never existed? It wouldn't now, no. Well, that's what I'm thinking of. The only thing that came from it is Parallax. Yeah, and he's gone now. And in the Multiversity Handbook, Parallax is the only thing of Zero Hour that's mentioned. Right, okay. Well, it's interesting getting the absolute for the crisis out. There's a couple of things, you know, in the Companion. Yeah. There's a couple of things in the Companion that struck me. One, Roy Thomas was vehemently against Crisis, but ultimately worked with him because he realised that was the direction the company was going in, even though he was the guy who ended up being screwed the most. Yeah. By Crisis on Infinite Earth with All-Star Squadron and Infinity Inc. and all that stuff just never happening anymore. And there was another brilliant quote in it. Paul Levitz, Jeanette Kahn and Dick Giordano said something like, these changes will be permanent right. for as long as we are in charge. <laughs> and I thought, that line should be underlined, highlighted in yellow, yeah. blown up and printed <laughs> on the wall for as long as they are in charge. Yeah. And so there you go. That's uh, it's what we've been saying for a while, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what changes are wrought by an editor-in-chief or a writer or whatever, those people will not be in charge of that character forever. Yeah. So that's just the way it is. Unless it's invincible, obviously. Mark Adams has emailed Avengers and JLA United. You gave fantastic coverage of the JLA Avengers crossover. Thank you very much, Mark. I appreciate that. One of my favourites... At the time it was published, I was reading both the Morrison JLA and the UK Avengers United reprints of Avengers Volume 3, and these worlds came together wonderfully. I do remember that the USA version was late for a couple of months, which meant that the UK reprint was bang up to date, and we also got a couple of cool filler stories from the early Perez era of Avengers. You can't help but love Beast in a Hawaiian shirt. No, you can't. I love the Beast in a Hawaiian shirt. When I collected the Avengers comics in the late 80s, I always compared the two teams and who were the counterparts if they did fight. And Marvel brought in a ringer of Quasar with the same powers, basically, as Green Lantern, only yellow. Smart move, Marvel. The Avengers JLA crossover was a well-crafted story that still holds up today, which you heaped well-deserved praise upon. Keep up the good work, guys. Mark Adams. You are very welcome, Mark. And Mark has a podcast, I believe, called Mark's Mess. But... He's not included a, a plug in his email, and he's not got a subject heading. Mark, dude, you know the rules of the show, man. If you've got a podcast, you've got to plug it. It is, yeah. Next, Chris Franklin has emailed in. Robin the Elderly Wonder. Hello, Leylands. Hello, Christopher. 
As a huge fan of Robin in general, and Dick Grayson in particular, you can imagine my excitement about your new series. Ask me who my favourite comic, hell, favourite fictional character is on any given day. And I may say Batman, or I may say Robin, or Nightwing, or Dick Grayson, but you get my drift. I first read the original Robin story in an odd little comic I got from mailing in proofs of purchase from Oreo Cookies in the mid-80s. Oreo Cookies is giveaway comics. That's pretty cool, yeah. Yeah, but is that not encouraging children to eat bad food? Yeah. I want that comic. I will eat food that is going to make my teeth fall out. But the children need encouragement to eat bad food. That's true. Not really. Uh, the, the comic had the cover of Detective Comics 27 and contained the first Batman story, the Robin story, and the first Joker encounter from Batman number one. I don't know why I'm bringing this up. I just think it's neat. I think that sounds like a great comic. Mm-hmm. Especially for free. Yeah. I mean, not free, you've bought Oreos, but the same thing. The early Batman tales do have a certain vibe to them that you just can't beat. Eartha is the term Andy used, and I think that's an apt one. Kane tended to call it Mysteriosa. There is a raw vitality to them that is just so satisfying, I think, and the solid foundation is one reason Batman and company have endured over 75 years, whilst others have faltered. Robin did seem to callously take out those mobsters. A similar scene happens in the present in the Batman animated series episode Robin's Reckoning Part 1, which Cindy and I covered in Supermates Episode 3. Plug there! There you go. That's how you do it. But the animators are careful to show the gangsters somehow surviving their falls. Yeah, right. Legend of the Dark Knight 100 was a big moment for the Robin fan in me. As aside from Batman Year 3 and A Lonely Place of Dying, post-crisis DC seemed to distance themselves from Dick's years as Robin. I even got a print of the Ross cover when it came out, and it still hangs in my collectibles room. I thought the retelling was fine, but Dave Taylor's art is very hit and miss with me. His proportions are often off and not in the I-draw-that-way-on-purpose way like Bruce Timm does, but it was a nice retelling of Dick's beginnings. The Jason Todd story was haunting. The shot of Batman cradling Jason's cold body still sticks out in my mind. It's etched in there, I think. Chuck Dixon was God in the Batverse during the mid to late 90s, and to me these titles have never been the same since he left. Nightwing issue 25 was a standout in a fantastic run. I really can't add more than what you two have said, other than a few continuity items. The cover reflects the post-cataclysmic Gotham after the giant earthquake. This will lead into No Man's Land, of course. The two murderesses Dick were involved with were from the Nightwing miniseries preceding the ongoing title drawn by Greg Land, and from Nightwing Annual 1, where Dick actually married a girl while it's not a case. It was part of DC's pulp annuals that year. As an aside to that, W. Blaine Dowler also texted me right. to tell us that, okay. that it was in that pulp annual um, of Nightwing, and somebody on Facebook did. I want to say it was David Gutierrez, but I could be wrong. But anyway, everyone who got in touch to say, yeah, that was Nightwing annual number one, thank you very much, which we've not read, because despite being in the Dixon era, Chuck Dixon didn't write it, therefore it's not in the trade paperbacks. So that's why we've not read it. Uh, Birds of Prey number eight, Chris continues, is one of my favourite single issues of all time. I was a big fan of the revived interest in the Dick-Babs relationship. I think you can credit the portrayal in Batman the Animated Series for Barbara's de-aging and the renewal of their attraction to one another. As much as I love all things from the Timverse, Bruce and Barbara having a thing after he and Dick broke up was just kind of icky. It's part of the canon I can do without. But anyway, back to Birds of Prey 8. I always wondered how much went on that night with Dick and Babs. I think Dick believing they could be a couple now points towards something more than just a kiss. But I like that Dixon keeps it ambiguous. Looking forward to more Robin, even if Michael insisted on some Damien in the... Sorry, I'm an old grouch, and I still think Tim Drake was the last word on Robin. Grumble, grumble, get off my lawn, etc. Well, to be fair to young Michael, Mm -hmm. he didn't pick it because it was a Damien story. 
why, as I said in the issue, we'd already covered Prodigal. Yeah. Uh, we didn't want to do the Black Mirror because it was just too damn long for the allotted space. So I went to Michael and said, right, pick a good Dick Grayson as Batman story that isn't long. You just picked that story, though. Well, no, you gave me a list, didn't you? You gave yeah, me, I gave this you is a good one, this is a good one, this is a good one. And I ultimately plumped for that one because we could do a lot of Cockney accents. Yeah, yeah. Jason Statham. I was thinking, though, we're doing Robin. And we did Tim Drake. And we <coughs> touched upon Jason. We did touch upon Jason. We, you know, can't leave out poor Damien. I think some people would have happy if we had. <laughs> but maybe us covering Damien will change people's minds. That's always a possibility, because it was actually a lot of fun, that story, wasn't it? Anyway, done. Done and dusted. Email's done for this week. We will uh, be back next week with more emails. Yes. Uh, but not with another show, because we're going to carry on with this show after these commercial <laughs> messages. You struggled, though, didn't you? I, I, did, I kind of thought we were finishing. <laughs> this is this is why we need to script your ad-libs. This is why we need to script the ad-libs and yeah. uh, make notes of the, uh, the tangent. <laughs> yeah, we'll be back in a minute after this plug for Listen to the Prophet, a Deep Space Nine podcast that I'm on that you're with Paul Spataro and uh, Sean Angle. Listen to it, it's dead good. doesn't get the downloads that we want it to. Bit of biasness there. Oh, yeah, it's actually self-promotion, dude. That's what yeah. it's all about, apparently. Uh, back in a minute. Here at Quarks, customer satisfaction is our primary concern. I'd say we just found our way into a wormhole. I'm Kira Norris. Lieutenant Commander Worf, reporting for duty, sir. You're the best crew any captain ever had. This may be the last time we're all together. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. And for Starfleet, one of our most important posts. It is quite simply, Commander, the journey you have always been destined to take. Sensors are not functioning. You've lost all contact with the space station. What the hell is happening out there? Shields up. <laughs> Damage report. Battle stations. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Listen to the Prophets, a Deep Space Nine Two True Freaks presentation with Sean Engel. And now with 100% more Paul Spataro. Sometimes things just drop through the cracks. Since we began recording Hey Kids Comics, lo, those many moons ago, the show somehow evolved away from what we planned it to be into this thing where we look at long arcs or specific characters over a number of weeks, or in some cases, complete decades of comics publishing. Doing that, however, meant that certain comics that were noted down in the book were dropped, either because they didn't fit or were squeezed out for other stories. So, we thought we'd rummage through the archives and have a look at comics that fell off the page, but are still just good comics, which seems like it would be a pretty good title for this little mini-season, wouldn't it? So, to that end, whilst Michael was in Venice... I leafed through the book to see what was in there, and if they were worthy of being resurrected for discussion. As ever, I asked Michael to contribute his Just Good comic, so we'll see how that works out for us. <laughs> the thing that struck me about these issues were that very few of them were epoch-making. Very few killed someone off, or were major changes to the characters, or alterations to the, say it with me, status quo. <laughs> they were just exactly what they should be, good comics. Looking at them, it's easy to see why they were dropped, but not everything has to be an event. Sometimes a good story 
is reward enough. So over the next few weeks we'll be digging out a few comics that may have escaped your notice. Comics that may not be regularly mentioned on CBR's comics should be good, but that for whatever reason stuck with me and Michael. As always, it's interesting to see if these hold up or not, and what resonance, if any, they have with the younger reader, that'll be you. There'll be appearances from Superman, Batman and Spider-Man, of course. I think people will be disappointed mm-hmm. if we didn't include those three. But also the Golden Age Superman may drop by, as may the Golden Age Batman. Plus other little seen characters on this show, such as Captain Britain and Doctor Strange. And Michael will no doubt bring some of his off-the-wall sensibilities to bear. I'll be disappointed if you don't. Mm, I'm being a little bit different, though. Why? Well, I'm, not, I'm not picking things that I've wanted to cover. What are you picking? Oh, I'm picking, like I said, I'm going to pick a left field this week. And a wig field next week. Saturday night. Why are you still looking left field? Next week I'm going to go right field and then pow. So you're cheating. You're you're betraying the premise of the the, the series. No. (laughs) I just (laughs) get so upset when I say stuff like that. Oh, yeah. It's it's okay. I'm just choosing good comics that would never have gotten the spot on the show. Oh, right, that, that's fable. That's the point, yeah. kind of, isn't it? it? I'm sure we'll give the usual insightful and comprehensive coverage. <laughs> <laughs> and others will just have a brief chat about. I mean, it won't be for everything. But all of them, though, we think, will be worth seeking out. Speaking of popular characters that have somehow slipped through the net of the show, the Invincible Iron Man. I can hear Luke Giaconetti going, woohoo! Um, oh, is that what that was? That's what that was. <laughs> yes. We heard him all the way over there. <laughs> yeah. The Invincible Iron Man, specifically issues 146 and 147. These stories were first read by me in the Spider-Man Weekly when Iron Man was introduced back into the strip as a backup feature. The story grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and never let go. I loved the art by John Romita Jr. and Bob Layton. Alongside George Perez, this is how Iron Man should look, but there is a specific moment in this story that just got to me and remained memorable to me over the years. Originally, this was penciled in for a few weeks of individual episodes we were going to do concentrating on the individual members of the Avengers. I think it was just before the film came out. But for whatever reason, we just, it just didn't happen. I can't. I don't even remember the reason there. Issue 146, cover dated May 1981, features a not particularly great cover. No. In my humble opinion. There is a reason that they didn't use this on Spider-Man Weekly. I think. The bad guy, Black Lash, has his back to us, so we don't really get a good look at him as he flashes his whip around. He's kind of apt on the week that Fifty Shades of Grey comes out, I suppose. Iron Man stumbles back, clutching his arm, and there are lots of concentric circles, as if one or both of them has a radar sense. It's not Bob Layton's best work. I also think that Blacklash having a top knot, wouldn't wouldn't Iron Man just grab hold of it and pull it up by it? That would be my thinking. What did you think of that cover? It's not great, is it? Which is a shame, because I do like Bob Layton. I just don't think that cover... I mean, I like the white background, and I like the Iron Man logo being black and red there's something quite cool about that but no as a cover it's it's not a great one both figures look a bit off as well do you think yeah black lashes legs look one leg looks much longer than the other but much thicker as well yeah it may just be the angle but no it's um i mean iron man actually looks like somebody in a suit of armor yeah which he didn't a lot of the time but no it's not it's not the best cover in the world is it Black Lash and the Burning was plotted and written by David Michelini, penciled by John Romita Jr., with inks and plot 
Bye, Bob Light. Artemis Pivens, employee of Stark Industries, is showing a group of schoolchildren around Stark International, something Tony Stark, a.k.a. Iron Man, is keen to avoid. Pivens is escorting the kids round when Vic Martinelli, Stark's chief of security, pulls him aside to berate him over a picture of Martinelli that has found its way into an article about Stark Industry published in Time magazine. Martinelli makes it quite clear that his contract stipulates no picture of him to is to appear anywhere, and if a slip-up like this happens again, Pivens will be for the high jump. As Tony Stark plays Gooseberry to Jim Rhodes and Devet Avril, who is auditioning to be Stark's second-in-command, Marnelli heads home. He's greeted by Peanut, his dog, and they playfully discuss the day's important events, including that they may have to move. Vic feels a little better having chatted with his pal, but the night takes a turn for the worse when Blacklash, formerly Whiplash, smashes through Martinelli's wall and calls him Martel. Martinelli doesn't back down, and a confrontation ensues in which Martinelli ends up in the swimming pool. Blacklash is thwarted by this, his whip working off electricity, and vows to return another day to kill Martinelli. Martinelli pulls himself out of the pool and back to the limp and unmoving form of Peanut, who was crushed when Blacklash burst in through the wall. The next day at Stark International, Tony notices Vic carrying suitcases, but his attention is quickly taken by the school trip, now in its last day of attendance. However, when Blacklash shows his face, Tony must go into action as Iron Man. Martinelli's security are keeping Blacklash at bay, Burley, when Iron Man, overconfident as ever, arrives and, not knowing Blacklash's new power set, is handed his head. When Blacklash smacks him around with a fire hydrant, Iron Man smashes the hydrant away and it ricochets around, landing inside a volatile experiment and causing an explosion that rains chemicals down all over Stark International. Iron Man doesn't know any of this and prefers to square up to Blacklash, saying that if he wants an employee of Stark's, he'll have to go through him to get them. Blacklash merely points out that he thinks Iron Man's going to be plenty busy in a moment and far too busy to stop him. Iron Man turns to see Stark International, that shining beacon of hope and optimism, burning to the ground. Which was a cracking ending to what I thought was a pretty great issue. So it's going to be great to see what you think of it. Okay. Because this is pretty boring as far as you're concerned. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for ages I call this guy Backlash. Yeah, which makes more sense than Blacklash. Which makes much more sense than Blacklash. Which makes a lot less sense than, than Whiplash. Whiplash. Yeah, why did I just keep his name? I, I, yeah, I know. <laughs> Blacklash is a crap name, hey, uh, Why not Backlash? Either that makes more sense. Did he get a stern word and over lack of equality and have to rebrand himself? <laughs> Backlash even mean? Backlash at least is a word. Yeah, is it because his costume is black? Bit of wordplay? Trying to be funny? Possibly. It don't work, does it? No. Stick at being a supervillain, mate. Because <laughs> as a comedian, you're, uh, you're a bit of a bust. Excellent splash page, though. Yeah. Iron Man streaking past the Stark International monorail, which mm-hmm. is quite cool. And also... Notable for being the fact that Iron Man doesn't appear for the vast majority of the rest of the issue. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's why they slid him in on the splash page, though. Yeah. Because, like, for the rest of the issue, he's just not there, which I quite liked. Uh, I think the reason this one stuck in my head is as great a story as this is, it's just what it made me feel. As we just mentioned, Iron Man doesn't really have a lot to do in this issue, but it doesn't matter. I think Michelini's writing a taut and interesting tale here. Relatable characters. 
in quite dire situations. Tony is arrogant and cocky, asking out this woman who's going to be his new vice principal. Has he never heard, don't date the people you work with? <laughs> he doesn't care. Tony does not care. No, not. he's Tony Stark. Yeah, but if it all goes wrong, will he fire her? Yes. You reckon? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he's not terribly put out though that Rhodey beat him to it. Yeah, he's not. He doesn't seem upset that Rhodey got there first. Do you think they sure? Uh, I was going to say maybe he doesn't mind. Yeah, very possible. But he's still quite a likable character in the opening scenes, isn't he? He's very smooth. Yeah, he's Peter Bowles. You don't remember who Peter Bowles is, no, do you? No. Peter Bowles was a British actor who was in Only When I Laugh and To The Man of Born and, and uh, is he in an episode of The Prisoner? He may have been in an episode of The Prisoner. He's definitely in an episode of Space 1999. He looked very much like Tony Stark. Okay. And he was a very smooth British guy. Right. And uh, Tony Stark always reminded me of Peter Bowles. Fair enough. I think he should have been Tony Stark. He's a bit like John Steed. He always reminded me of John Steed or Patrick Mitney. Uh, I did like that Tony Stark wanted nothing to do with the kids. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was hysterical. They walk in the room and Tony just disappears out the side door. Yeah, well, the kids and Pivins annoyed me. Well, Tony doesn't think much of Pivins, but he recognises that he's good at his job. Yeah. So he keeps him around, which I thought was quite nice. I don't know what's going on with Bethany Cabe. I don't remember. That follows up from Demon in the Bottle, doesn't it? I think, which wasn't very much before this was it this is 146 hmm. Demon in a Bottle 128 I don't know so you're 20 years 20 does, years 20 issues he does refuse a drink in the next issue he does so. which I thought was a lovely touch yeah I thought that was I've got a note about that later on uh, the art is especially good or I think it is do you get a Burt Reynolds vibe yeah yeah <laughs> in this as well yeah a little bit of Burt Reynolds going on there Circa Hooper which was about 1978 I think uh, this is more Bob Layton than it's John Romita Jr. Mm. I think. I don't know whether John Jr. was just doing pencils or what's it at this point. I did like that when Martinelli opens his fridge, Justin Hammer milk. Oh, yeah. I thought that was uh, quite a nice, uh, subtle touch. I did think it odd that the kids' field trip to Stark International takes place more, over more than one day. Yeah. Have you ever been on a field trip that took more than one day? No. Uh, no. I mean, you just went to Venice and China, where there were school yeah, yeah. thingy or field, field trips. trips. Yeah. You don't tend to go on a field trip that takes you more than a... But all right, maybe Stark International's big. Yeah, maybe it's bigger than Venice. Yes, and maybe there's... Uh, <laughs> I, I don't, what can they show you at a, at a power factory? And here's another big generator. Yeah, and here's another science facility. And here's some more pseudoscience. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Here's a fight. Oh, the builders burn. Oh, it's Iron Man! Yay! <laughs> That's Aust- why we came! If Ofsted could see this. Yeah, Ofsted comes and gives Iron Man <laughs> needs improvements, God. <laughs> Health and safety be damned. <laughs> uh, having a machine that propels a piping hot cup of coffee across a corridor is clearly in contravenance of a number of health and safety Yeah, laws. yeah, it's very specific as well. Yeah, it, the, the coffee comes out of a coffee machine that is across a corridor away from Mrs. Arbogast, and then it spills on her. Well, maybe 
she she designed it so that she didn't have to walk all the way down to the... Uh... I know, but still, this is 1981. So the Health and Safety at Work Act came into being in 1978. Right. So Tony Stark is looking at a serious... Can you imagine somebody's walking across that corridor and that shoots out an it? <laughs> He's looking at a double lawsuit. The, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm Pivins is anal enough that he Because I'm willing to bet he's the health and safety officer. Oh, yeah. So he, he's totally the type, isn't he? <laughs> he is. Totally the type to be the boring health and safety officer. Um, something really weird about this. When Tony bumps into the kids that, uh, that want his autograph, I'm trying to find the page. Where is it? It's before this. Is it? Oh, yeah. Right, the girl, uh on uh, page three, who goes to Tony Stark to ask for his autograph. Is she really unbuttoning her blouse? Oh, yeah. <laughs> She's what? <laughs> ten? That's just not right. I mean, at least the kids have got pads and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe she's not doing, but... Well, maybe she once saw her mum at a Motley Crue thing. <laughs> that's where she came yeah, from. Yeah. <laughs> she's the product of her mum's liaison with Motley Crue. Yeah, yeah. But she doesn't know which one. <laughs> Neither do they. Neither do they. No, I, mean, I just thought that was a bit icky. Yeah. Well, I didn't notice it until now. But, well, does it look to you like that's what it is? Now you've pointed it out, yeah? Because I, I, I did look at the art there and go, well, well, what other implication can I draw from that? She's clearly pulling her blouse open. Yeah, it does say, will you autograph me? Yes, she does. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's just not, no, I'm, I'm not having that. I mean, these kids don't look like they're much older than 11. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I know it was a different time in the early 1980s, well, judging by what we see on the news of popular 70s which, entertainers. Which famous celebrity were we talking about at the top of the show? <laughs> Tony Stark has paid a lot of money for that to go away. Yeah. <laughs> um, as is the norm for comics of the day, there's an awful lot of subplots in this issue. Yeah. Isn't there? I don't think any of them were cluttering. None of them cluttered up the comic. It feels like it's a busy day in the life of the employees at Stark International. Uh, what did you think? Yeah, I didn't. The, the subplots meant nothing to me, really, so I, I kind of gloss over them. It didn't really interfere with the story, no. any, did it? So, yeah, I thought that was quite good writing. Uh, of course, for me, the the reason this remains very memorable from being a child is the, the scene in the middle of the boot, which is a heartbreaker. Uh-huh. I was genuinely gutted as a kid that Black Lash had killed Peanut. And I'm still pretty upset about yeah, it now. Yeah. It's, oh, this was gut-wrenching. Not only... As a testament to Michelini's skill as a writer, I'd not read any of this Iron Man before I read this issue. Mm. This was the first one I read as a reprint in the back of Spider-Man. But the fact that I liked Martinelli and Peanut and despised Blacklash for what he did was an absolutely brilliant way of manipulating the emotions of the reader. Yeah. Kudos to him. But you don't kill the frigging dog! It's one of those things, though, where you, know, you kill off Superman and it's an event. You kill off... Spider-Man, it's an event, but you kill off a dog and it's in one panel, but it's it's something that can happen any day. Yeah, and so it has more impact. Yeah. Kill off Superman or Spider-Man or Human Torch or whatever, you're like, you know they're coming back. Yeah. But Peanut's dead. Yeah. What a downer. 
And it's in the middle of a story. Well, in in the Marvel UK Spider-Man Weekly, that's where the strip ended. Right. That's where you got to be continued, because obviously yeah. they split them into two with it being a weekly. So that makes for a really bleak ending. Yeah. Peanut! Oh, no, I was, I was genuinely upset. That probably made it worse then, with it ending yeah, up. Yeah, that's that. where it was to be continued in the, in the UK reprint. So that's the last thing you really That's the last thing you read story. in the comic. Yeah. Because the Spider-Man strip led the comic. The backup yeah. strip was obviously at the back. That was the last page of the comic. Right. Vic Martinelli cradling his dead dog. So that would have had more of an impact. And it was... What? <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was quite upsetting, actually. I'm, uh, I'm not going to lie. A couple of boxes there for Latveria, setting up uh, Iron Man 150. Right. Where he will fight Doctor Doom. Yeah. Which is a, an absolutely fantastic story. Is that the Camelot one? Yes, right. the Camelot one, which is a, a great story. Did seem a bit silly to me that Vic came back to Stark International after Black Lash attacked. So if he now knows that his um, witness protection program has been yeah. uh, screwed over, would he not run? Yeah. Or do you think he thought, I've got a better chance of fighting back at Stark International? Iron Man hangs out here. Iron Man hangs out here and I'm surrounded by security. Yeah. And weapons. Mm. So, maybe. You know, I, I don't know. Iron Man gets taken down due to his own overconfidence, which is kind of typical of a Marvel book, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to wrap this up. Uh, we'll talk about the issue as a whole generally, but Iron Man putting the armour on on page 26 is absolutely fantastic. Oh, it's always cool. Always cool. I, I like the golden and red armour, even though it makes no sense. He puts on his, his gloves and the yellow just climbs up his arm. Well, see, it doesn't here, does it? Well, the yellow already looks like it's he's wearing it. Well, that's later on in Extremis, really. Right. Unless he did it a lot earlier. But, yeah, I mean, he does actually look like a guy in armour. Yeah. The Bob Layton issue. Back when they set it up, it was just his chest plate, his boots, yeah. and his gauntlets, and the the yellow stuff would just kind of move its way up. Right, so it's just, like, tight. Yeah. Whereas now it's all armour. I, I, I love that page. I love the art. I think it's an absolute great issue. Uh, in terms of adverts, because this is an early 1980s comic and therefore chock full of brilliant adverts, Master Kung Fu issue 100 was out this month, which I got in the 50p bins not too long ago. Don't think I've read it yet. The Thing is the person advertising uh, subscriptions. That very much looks like a Joe Sinnott thing to me. The Thing is advertising Marvel 2 in 1, which is brilliant. Marvel 2 in 1 issue 75. Double sized issue. Uh, Marvel Universe Money has Stan Lee on him. And Jim Shooter signed it. Uh, you can get Marvel dollars. No, I think it was just advertising oh, uh, right. some winning some money, isn't it? Very, I kind of want one. I wouldn't have some Marvel dollars. That'd be awful. Awful, awful. <laughs> uh, the thing in Earthly Delight is the uh, hostess fruit pies. He's versus, it looks like it's the Impossible Man, but they look a bit too evil to be the Impossible Man. Don't recognise the artist on that one. Maybe Ron Wilson. Don't know. Um... And the Mighty Marvel checklist has lots of cool comics because Marvel was brilliant in the early 1980s. <laughs> well, it was, wasn't it? Not a single bad comic. Not a single... Well, I'm not going to say not a single bad <laughs> comic, but... Issue 147 has a much better cover and one that did make it as a cover for the Spider-Man Weekly. Iron Man flies skyward, his arms tied at the bicep to his chest by Black Lash's whip as Black Lash is pulled behind him over the burning buildings of Stark International. Black Lash may have Iron Man's arms pinned, the cover copy reads, but he's in for the ride of his life. As opposed to last issue, Bob Layton nails this cover. And that's brilliant. 
What yeah. do you think? No, I, I like it. Just, I like that Iron Man's arm is cracking as well. Yeah. Where Black Lash's whip is. I still don't get how Black Lash's whip is just a normal whip, and yeah. It isn't. It's got electricity and, and yeah, gubbins it, happening it, in it. It just looks normal, though. It does just look like a normal Indiana Jones-style whip. Yeah. I'll give you that, but it does explain that it has uh, super-powered properties. That's a much better cover, isn't it? It is. Love that. that it's still, still uh, got Black Lash on it, so... Yeah. As a villain, he's, he doesn't suck. He's, no, he's quite a good villain. He's just got a stupid name. Yeah, Whiplash was a much better name. It was. Just leave the name. The name's copyright, dude. <laughs> leave the name alone. That's where the merchandise comes from, from mm-hmm. the name. Nobody's going to remember Blacklash, and everyone's going to call you Backlash. <laughs> so just leave it as Whiplash. It just makes much more sense. Holocaust at High Noon was the title, same creative team as last time. Iron Man blasts Blacklash into a building and then flies Martinelli out of harm's way. He orders Martinelli to get the civilians out of the buildings and clear the grounds as the fire starts spreading rapidly. Over in the experimental lab complex, Pivins and Devet cover the kids with water from the water cooler and then try to lead them to safety, but the exits are all blocked. Fortunately, Iron Man blasts open the fire escape, freeing the kids. He then turns to the administration building and rescues Mrs. Arbogast. Outside, the fire brigade are controlling the blaze, but Martinelli and his security team are rounding on Blacklash. The guards aren't really any match for him, as he proves, but there are now a ton of coppers and law enforcement officials answering to the fire alarm, and Blacklash decides even if he kills Martinelli here, there is a good chance the cops could overpower him just by sheer numbers. As Blacklash flees, Iron Man fills a tanker with water and manages to aid in the quenching of the fire. Tony later confronts Martinelli, who tells him that his real name is Vince Martell, and he is in the Witness Protection Program after testifying against mob bosses. He's prepared to leave Stark International, but Tony tells him that that ain't happening. That night, Blacklash prepares to strike again. However, Iron Man, Rhodey and Martinelli have rigged a trap for the whip snapper, and Blacklash falls for it. Blacklash's new armour is still a source of irritation to Iron Man, and Blacklash manages to get in a few decent blows, even chipping Iron Man's armour and pinning him down with a heavy gravity field. Iron Man kicks in the boot jets, sending him, and by extension Blacklash, who is attached to Iron Man via his whip, skyward. Blacklash can't let go, or he'll fall to his death. Iron Man speeds up, heading directly towards a building, but pulls up at the last minute, smashing Blacklash into the wall. Later, Iron Man dumps Blacklash's body on the desk of the Magia hitmen who hired him to kill Martinelli and tells them that if they forget about the contract, Iron Man will forget about them. Oh, that was a bit of a what's it ending. Yeah. Yeah, You don't come after my friend, I'll leave you alone. And you're like... Sukasa Mikasa. Yeah, yeah, Iron Man, you you do know these are mafia hitmen, right? (laughs) You know, unless he left and then just slipped a note in Thor's pocket. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you ever bored, lob there. Just go over there and smash them up a bit. Uh, there's a minor colouring gaffe on page three that actually hinders the story slightly. Yvette pulls aside a technician to help the kids get out of the building, but his white lab coat changes to blue. Did you notice? Making it look like she's talking to Pivins. Oh, yeah. But she isn't. I mean, I did like that she and Pivins don't like each other. Uh, another excellent splash page. Iron Man standing between Black Lash and Vic Martinelli as uh, Stark International burns in the background. The art in these issues is just gorgeous. I think the art's brilliant in these. Uh, Mrs. Arbogast is brilliant. Mm. I did love Mrs. Arbogast. She was a great character. She's funny and quite snarky. And Iron Man going to the uh, administration building and having to pick her up and carry her out. Because she's she's sorting all the people. Because she's trying to save Mr. Stark's paperwork, yeah. And Iron Man's like, 
any time today. I love the way he's casually just leaning against the yeah, thing. Yeah. Like, you know, we've got all the time in the world. The building is not burning down <laughs> around your ears. And she's like, well, all this stuff from Mr. Stark. I need to save it. No, we'll worry about that another time. Uh, Iron Man putting out the fire is also a pretty neat action beat. He fires a number of repulsor blasts into the building, making a couple of strategic holes. He then takes a tanker, rips the top off, fills it with water from the sea before returning and dumping it over the buildings, putting out the fire. Which is kind of what Superman would do in Superman yeah, 3. it's a very Superman thing to do. It is a very Superman thing to do, isn't it? Except Superman used his icy super breath. Yeah. Stuff. To, to do it whereas Iron Man has to use the tanker which was good though mm-hmm. absolutely brilliant opening really loved it um, as Michael mentioned when we were talking about last issue Vic Martinelli offers Tony a drink and he just turns it down with a casual no thanks which yeah. was a lovely little character bit but I did also think it was very much a sign of the times that Vic not only had a bottle of whiskey in his office <laughs> yeah. but he offered his boss a drink and Tony thought nothing of it yeah. Got nothing of the fact that his head of security has a bottle of whiskey in his office. Oh, the early eighties. Seven minute for serious conversations. Well, at which this is. Isn't yeah. It? Um, the name Vic Martinelli didn't really <laughs> seem that big of a change from Vince Martell <laughs> yeah. for the witness protection program. I thought that. It's like putting you in it and calling you Michelle Leland <laughs> yeah. or Leland. Just knocking off a few letters. Yeah. Just take, take a couple of letters, take the Y out the middle, like people <laughs> kept doing with us. And yeah. there you go, again, you're a new person. <laughs> yeah. Wow, where did you go? <laughs> I am Michelle Leland. I am a completely different person from Michael Leland. My middle name is Paula. <laughs> <laughs> I am French. Yeah. Isn't that unusual in French? For having a name like that. Michelle Paula Leland. <laughs> you English pig. <laughs> I also love the idea that um, supervillains have groupies yeah. that jump from villa to villain. It's <laughs> like you were on about earlier, it was a mother Motley crew. Yeah. <laughs> she was a supervillain groupie. <laughs> <laughs> Which amuses me no end. Uh, Black Lash's real name is given as Mark Scott, uh, but every time it appears in the comic, it looks like there was some editing because the name Mark Scott or Mark or however it appears is always in different lettering that doesn't match the other lettering in the comic. Right. See, Mr. Scott, and look, it's different. No, yeah. So I wonder if originally Michelini got the name wrong or they changed the name or... See that, Scott? No. Slightly different, isn't it? So I don't know what happened there, post-production gaff or maybe Michelini didn't put his name in the script so he couldn't remember it until the editor to find it. Yeah. By which point the editor had to pencil it in himself. I don't know. This is all just supposition. On my part. The ending is uh, a staggering stroke of luck that Black Lash arrives just in time to hear all of the requisite dialogue that he needs to hear to make this plan work. Unless... Iron Man was waiting for Black Lash to arrive before saying, right, go. Yeah, yeah. He had it all set up. Because otherwise, Rhodey and um, Martinelli, they were just hanging around going, oh, he's here. All right. (laughs) Um, I don't really like Mr. Stark's plan to have you fly me to a hiding place, (laughs) Rhodey. Oh, no sweat, Vic. It's good. That, it's a good job that they're good actors, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To make him fall for this. 
can you just imagine if Vic had a cue card? It was like Marlon Brando when he had his script pinned to the side of uh, of Rody's chest. Is there so like a, a, a an auto cue thing <laughs> off the off the side? You think that would have given it away? Maybe. Do you think uh, Backsmash would have noticed? <laughs> well, yeah, he, d- he doesn't strike me as the the smartest. No, no, Backside really isn't a very uh, smart villain, is he? No, no. Um, it's an excellent fight scene at the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, which totally makes up for the fact that last issue didn't have much in the way of action, but was still very, very entertaining. Um, Michelini just keeps plying Iron Man with difficulty upon difficulty, only to have him have to keep thinking his way out of it. Which caps off two wonderfully memorable and magnificent comics. Um, I think the reason these stuck with me all these years is the potent combination of superheroics and reality the mundane real life concerns of the characters just don't go away just with the arrival of superheroes does it mm. Black Lash is still about needing to make some money yeah. Iron Man is still concerned about the fact that oh dear my company's just burned to the ground Vic Martinelli's in witness protection and this is what Marvel did best and I don't think it's something Marvel or DC do enough of these days mm. I don't really care about the private lives of the characters much anymore because they don't really seem to have any these are the kind of comics that hooked me. Not death, not huge events. And while I don't think I've ever seen these issues top the polls when talking about best comics ever, these are exactly what I want this miniseries to be about. Just great comics. It's just a shame Black Shaft wasn't very good. It's just a shame that uh, Black Shaft was a bit crap, <laughs> yeah. And he was. And his name was. As a villain, he's great. Yeah. And he really does give Iron Man a run for his money in these, because Iron Man's overconfident with him. He thinks, oh, Whiplash, uh, I'll take you out before breakfast. And then he gets his head handed to it. Mm. So as a villain, he's great. It's just he should have left his name as Whiplash. Yeah. Blacklash is a stupid name. What did you think of him? I I like the Iron Man Black Shaft bits. Black Shaft. I like the Iron Man Backdraft bits. The, the, the peanuts bit was a bit oh peanuts <laughs> it did stick don't out don't start on peanut dude yeah, no that did stick out it's just yeah I loved them I think they're absolutely brilliant I think the Michelini Leighton run Meter Junior run on Iron Man is absolutely fantastic and those are two standout issues in a standout run and the fact that they are just considered normal yeah they're brilliant I will have no words said against them absolutely right. fantastic the next book I've chosen, because I get to say, ha ha, you weren't here last week, so I got to pick, is everything they don't really do today, but was a staple of my comics reading as a kid, even if I never actually read this particular comic as a kid. Some of the titles that were always on my B or C list of comics to buy after my top tier titles were bought were the Bronze Age team-up books, Marvel Team-Up and Marvel 2-in-1, printed, oddly enough, by Marvel, and The Brave and the Bold and DC Comics Presents... But you can't guess who published DC Comics Presents. Image? Yes. Almost always presented complete stories within their pages, so there was none of that pesky concern with finding part two that plagued newsagent distribution. They also tended to feature lower-tier characters teaming up with more recognisable names, Spider-Man, The Thing, The Batman and Superman, respectively. So this gave the reader a wider knowledge of the company's respective universes. From the DC side, my favourite kinds of team-ups tended not to be the oddball ones, which I think are the ones you favour. You know, whilst Superman meeting OMAC and Batman teaming up with Sergeant Rock held their appeal, I always favoured the team-ups that were a bit more mainstream. 
I fondly remember Superman meeting Robin and the Joker. But my all-time favourites, even if the stories weren't particularly good, were team-ups like Superman and Clark Kent, or team-ups between Earth-1 and Earth-2, like Batman and Huntress, or his team-up with Robin, the ex-boy wonder, ridiculous yellow tights to the contra. Not being a reader of JSA, these team-up books probably gave me more of an insight into the Earth-1 and Earth-2 shenanigans than any other DC comics, which is something we'll be coming back to in a few weeks' time. That's known as a tease. Mm. This comic, magnificent though it is, was not one I bought when I was a kid. I picked up DC Comics Presents Annual Number 1, released in June of 1982, after being teased by the cover for years in Florida. Of all places. It was at Coliseum of Comics where it was 50% off its $4 cover price. That was still a dollar more than its proper cover price, so Professor Allen probably wouldn't approve. But given that I'd wanted this for years, couldn't resist. So it's not a 25% bargain, so Professor Allen would not feature it on his show. <laughs> but, you know, I could live with $2 for this. Because it's great. Even though it's only $1. It should have been $1. I'd pay $2. $1 for an annual? Yeah. It's a sign of the times, dude. Yeah. Insert rant about how much current comics cost here. Grr. Back in my day. Grr. <laughs> Get off my lawn. Just Grr. a field. Grr. <laughs> Just a field. Very good. <laughs> Very funny. The cover, uh, I've already kind of mentioned, is absolutely gorgeous. I can't decide if it's painted or not. But Rick Buckler, or is he Rich? He's Rich Buckler, isn't he? Rich Buckler and Dick Giordano give us an excellent cover of Superman teaming up with the Golden Age Superman. With the floaty heads, Lex Luthers of Earth 1 and Earth 2 hovering in the background. The Earths also loom above and below, and the stars shine and twinkle. There's a decent attempt to ape Wayne Boring's body language for Superman of Earth 2, whilst Earth 1 Superman is a tad more bulky and more Neil Adams like me, like lots. I like it. I was going to say, what do you think of it, Michael? Yeah. No, I, I, I like the, the Earths and the, the, the space. I like the, the different body languages. Yeah, I like, I like yeah, that the, the rest of the issue mm. as well. Oh, yeah, that's an absolutely fantastic cover. Is it painted? No, I don't think so. What's different about it? I don't know. Maybe watercolours. Yeah, there's something about that cover that gives it that kind of Alex Ross painterly feel, but it doesn't look painted, so there's something about it. It could just be watercolours, but with it's still coloured. Do you think it's usually. a colouring thing rather than an artist thing? Although the colourist is, is an artist. Like I said, it, could be both. it looks like a bit of watercolour, but then they've gone on it and proper coloured it. Yeah. I think it's great. I think it's an absolutely fantastic cover. DC Comics Presents did four annuals over its uh, its lifespan, and not one of them is bad. Mm. Every single one of them is enjoyable stuff. Crisis on Three Earths was written by Marv Wolfman, with art by Rich Buckler and Dave Hunt. Dave Hunt manages to make a lot of the art look very much like Kurt Swan, and Rich Buckler is doing a Neil Adams impersonation for quite a lot of the issue. Mm. But that, these are not bad things. No. I don't think. A meeting of giants, Superman, created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, side by side with the Golden Age Superman, created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. I love how the logos are exactly the same, so they have to put the Golden Age on top of it. Well, the new one has the cut-off edges more than the old one does. Yeah. I, I like Superman's logo being red and blue, as opposed to being it's red and yellow on the cover. And again, I like that the Superman 
bursting out of the chains of his chest is very Wayne Boring mm. and good splash pads that from a time when they did splash pages that were absolutely nothing to do with yeah, the story. Yeah, yeah. Well, in fact, it's another cover. Yeah. Essentially. Variants. Yeah, a variant cover. <clears throat> Are you ready for this synopsis? Because, my <laughs> God, this was dense. In a good way. Mm-hmm. In a very, very good way. After a quick lunch in Paris with Lois, Superman returns to Metropolis to find Lex Luthor back to his old tricks again, robbing a bank in a giant armoured tank thing. Lois is a bit put out that the date is brought to an abrupt halt without dessert. Hey, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. But after Superman stops Luther and throws him in jail again, Lois and he have a conversation where Superman basically tells her that she will always come second to the world. Over on Earth 2, almost simultaneously, Alexei Luther, fed up with being beaten by Superman, targets the Daily Star building with missiles, and even Superman, with his vaunted powers, won't be able to stop them all. This slightly elder Clark Kent, now married to Lois, manages to do just that, and throw Luther in jail. Again. However, in a moment that will become a tad repetitive by the time the story ends, Luther of Earth 1 planned for his defeat and uses a robot he has in prison to build a dimensional vortex that swaps him and Alexei over to each other's Earths. Chaos ensues when, free on a world that doesn't know who they are, the Luthers wreak havoc. Alexei sends Superman to the other side of the galaxy thanks to some gravity bands he's nicked off the wizard, and Lex shrinks Superman down to a world of atoms. Rather stupidly, Lex built a reverse button on his weapon and Mrs. Kent punches the greatest criminal mind of our time. Of our time. Steals the gun and brings Superman back. Elsewhere, Alexei outsmarts himself. The black hole he has dispatched Superman into crushes the gravity bands before it really hurts Superman. And free, he returns to Earth. Thoroughly pissed off with the Luthers, Superman and Superman have an interdimensional chat and cast both Luthers into the limbo vortex between both worlds. Of course, Lex was prepared for this and takes Alexei's hand and, thanks to a dimensional escape clause built into his contract, sorry, his suit, they both disappear and end up on Earth 3. Because threequels are never as good, unless they are James Bond films, the Luthers team up with Ultraman, that Earth Superman, only it's an Earth without heroes, so Ultraman is a bad guy. Fortunately, Earth 3's Lois is every bit as nosy as Earth 1 and Earth 2's and witnesses this meeting of minds. She makes a beeline to Alex Luther, the Earth 3 Luther, who is a good man on this world, and he quickly deduces that Alexei must have made an ion drive that will destroy Earth 1 and 2, which would be the first conclusion I would leap to. On Earth 2, the Supermans have got together for a chat, with Superman telling Superman that the best thing he ever did was marry Lois, and Superman is an idiot for not telling her how he feels. The tete-a-tete is interrupted by the disembodied head of Alex Luther, who informs them that Zur and the Kodan Armada are coming, and if by Zur he means the Luthers and Ultraman, and by Kodan Armada he means about to trash Earths 1 and 2. The Supermans, Supermen, whatever, journey to Earth 3 and team up with Alex and Lois, who on this Earth fancies a bit of Lex action, that has convinced Alex to be that Earth's first costumed hero, and the three of them zoom off to do that whole save the day thing. 
However, there is dissension in the ranks. Lex doesn't want Alexei to destroy Earth-1. He quite likes the idea of ruling a planet, not blowing one up. But in this case, it's Alexei who planned ahead. Turns out he built the Ion Drive ages ago and planted it here on Earth-3 so he could implement his mad scheme. This will materialise both Earth-1 and Earth-2 in the same space at the same time, destroying both worlds. If Luther isn't with him, he's against him. And Alexei can't have anyone with him who isn't with him. The discussion is interrupted when the Supermans, Supermen, whatever, appear and Ultraman decides to kill them both. A lot. Ultraman kicks the crap out of both Superman, Superman, whatever, and it's up to Alex Luthor to save the day, thanks to a device he whipped up at lunch that turns Ultraman intangible. With him off the table, the Superman's... Is that what we're settling on? Yeah. Okay. Find the Luthers just as Lex is rebelling. Their arrival causes the Luthers to put their own differences aside as neither one wishes to return to jail, although they probably have already prepared for it anyway. Superman 2 stays to take out the Luthers while Superman 1 takes off to prevent the Earths from colliding. Superman 2 destroys the Ion Drive despite taking a pummeling from the Luthers and Superman 1 pops over to the limbo space and places himself in between the Ion Tractor Beam that is tearing the Earths apart, then fires the intangibility ray at both Earths, allowing them to pass harmlessly through each other. With both Luthers and Ultraman returned to jail, Alex and Superman return to their respective Earths to get it on with their respective Lois lanes. But Earth-1 Superman realises that his Lois is just as married to her job as he is. Um, I thought this was damn good. Yeah. I loved every minute of this. 40 pages of balls-to-the-wall action character and really wild things of a kind that this was what annuals were Mm. when I was a kid. An annual was a special treat, a double-sized adventure featuring something too big for the regular comics to contain. Nowadays, they're just throwaways or parts of a multi-part narrative and don't stand alone. And they're not even special anymore, are they? Some of them aren't even double-sized, despite costing more money. Wolfen manages to cram so much into this story, and it's almost unbelievable how much is in this, given this I purred that synopsis down. Yeah. And it's just still jam-packed. But it never drags, and apart from the ending, which felt a little bit too Marvel, yeah. it never feels rushed. Mm. What did you think? I, I liked it. I kind of like Alexi as well. Like, you know, this is Red Sun World, apparently. Yeah. Let's, let's call him Alexi. Alexi. Alexi Sale. <laughs> Alexi, Alexi Luther's stuff. <laughs> Which would be a great thing. No, I, I liked it. I liked the difference between the, um, the two Supermans. I like the older Superman. I like... Well, we're big fans of Golden Age Superman. Yeah. From, from doing Happy Birthday Superman. I, I fell in love with Golden Age Superman. Yeah, yeah. And he's still rapidly rocketed to the top of... My favourite incarnations of the character. Yeah, yeah. You're not fighting any woman now, he says, as he shows a wife beater out of a window. Golden Age Superman just doesn't take anyone's shit and he's great for that. He's brilliant, isn't he? Yeah. If you're causing grief to somebody, this guy's going to throw you off a building. He may catch you before you hit the floor. (laughs) But you'll you'll be terrified. But, you know, it'll be brown trousers time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's why we love him. We think he's absolutely fantastic. I I like the the Lois Lane relationship as well. You know, there's a bit of it where... I don't get the ending as much. 
yeah, he'll always learn to married to his job as much as Superman is, but just because Perry's sending her off to Europe doesn't mean she's just left that second and he has to mope about. Well, that's the, that's the thing with it. The ending, Superman standing in the deserted storeroom, was a little bit more Spider-Man than I would have liked. But the message is slightly confusing, like you were just saying. Whilst Lois was a little, if you like it, then you better put a ring on it. Yeah. In the opening sequence. The Superman of Earth 2 never said Lois or himself had to give up their jobs to be together and be happy. And this seems to imply that Superman of Earth 1 expects Lois to give up yeah. her job to be with him. Which is no more likely to happen than him giving up being Superman. Yeah. He's, he's completely missed the point of what Earth 2 Superman told him. Yeah. Which was that he told Lois the truth and then they made the relationship work. Yeah. Whereas Earth 2 Superman seems to think, ah, well, you'll fall into my arms when I tell you the truth and you'll give up this reporter <laughs> nonsense. And he's a little bit of a chauvinist. If she wasn't who she was, though, with her job, would... He wouldn't love her. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Earth 1 Superman... Yeah, Earth, I'm mixing up my Earths, aren't I? Earth 2 Superman... Yeah. ...has told Lois the truth, and they've both accepted each other for what they are, and they've made their relationship happen. Mm-hmm. Whereas Earth 1 Superman doesn't seem mature enough to handle that. So, the older Superman has a maturity that the younger one doesn't have. Yeah, it's a nice difference between them as well. Yeah, which was an interesting thing to play on. Maybe our Superman's just not there yet. Yeah. Which is possible. I did think grafting a sad ending onto what was just basically a rollicking adventure mm. didn't really work. Yeah. Because it, it seemed out of place. After what was a romp, I mean, I know, you know, three worlds were at stake. So yeah. they, it was high stakes, as you would expect, from an annual that had two Superman having to sort it all out. Superman, Superman, whatever. But, the, yeah, this this sad... Spider-Man-esque ending just did not work for me. Yeah. In the context of a, a rollicking good adventure story. But... But... Ultraman... What about it? Was pretty down cool. Oh, Ultraman's awesome in this comic. Yeah. Ultraman's absolutely fantastic. My only problem with Ultraman is he seems to get... He got took out of the game too quickly. Yeah, yeah. And there was an awful lot of... I have prepared for such an eventuality. <laughs> so you do have that thing that... If, um, if Lex Luthor's prepared for everything... Why is he constantly getting caught? I have prepared for such an eventuality. But Maybe. you didn't prepare for getting thrown in jail in the first place. It's his curse, his downfall, yeah. is he prepares for every eventuality except for the one just underneath his nose. Superman. No, I don't part of that. <laughs> Everything's geared around being prepared for Superman. Yeah. And there was a couple of other problems with it as well. If Superman 2 broke all the equipment then why is it still working when Superman flies... Superman 1 flies up to it on page 39? Shouldn't him busting everything up there on page 38 have stopped all this ray from firing? Yeah. Shouldn't it have stopped it? Maybe. Uh, you know. Uh, if Ultra, Ultraman is also written as being a little bit stupid mm. in this issue. I mean, it works for the story, and he is cool, like yeah. you say, but he's a little bit dumb. Well, Ultraman is a little bit dumb. Yes, is he? Yeah. Right, okay. Alright, that works then. He's, he's right. anger over... Over intelligence. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. Why did the Lois of Earth 2 think that she's far more important than the world? Yeah. <laughs> so that was another thing as well. Lois 
was like, yeah, yeah, you're Superman, I get that, but, you know, I'm me. Yeah, yeah. So these two aren't the, yeah. Come on, I'm willing to put out here. Yeah, which which is, um, <laughs> well, that's what she meant by wanting dessert, was, yeah, yeah, was yeah, what yeah. I got for He's off to the fortress to give her every exclusive, if you know what I mean. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um, the dialogue's very Bronze Age. I mean, it services the story, it pushes the story forward, but it's typically Warv Wolfman. It's very overblown. Marv Wolfman, <laughs> not Warv Wolfman. Uh, in that it's very overblown and frequently very melodramatic, but it's still great. Yeah, I, I like it in a story that is a Golden Age Superman story. I mean, it is. It's a very melodramatic and over, overly dramatic story, yeah. which is why it's absolutely fantastic. This is everything good comics were when I was a kid. There's a threat to three Earths. There's lovely little character moments, moments of the heroes actually being threatened and possibly killed. Mm. This is one of those rare Superman comics where you're like, wait a minute, Superman's actually in a little bit of danger here. Yeah. I mean, you're never in any doubt he's not going to pull it off. Mm. But at the same time, both of them were put in situations here where you're thinking, wait a minute, this is actually a threat. Yeah. This isn't just, you know, busting out of chains and bullets bouncing off his chest. There's a real threat that he may not live through this. Well, I like the limitations of the Earth 2 Superman. Yeah, he's not as strong as the Earth 1 Superman, and is he? he? he does his, his single, his, his little bounds. Yeah, instead of flying. Yeah. So he's weakened as he's, he's gotten old. Or did the Earth 2 Superman never fly? He did fly. Did he? Because he, he says, I started out my career jumping, I can right. finish it like that. Right, okay. Sorry, then he's just weakening as he's getting older. Mm. Wouldn't it make more sense that he gets stronger as he gets older? As he's absorbed more well, sun radiation? I, I don't know. If, if the you know his biology is like a human's biology, you don't get stronger the older you get. You have your peak, and then yeah. you get weaker. See, because there are other variations on this that have said that the yellow sun energy regenerating his cells as it does he would age slower than human beings yeah which is well that would be a retcon when they later revealed it was just makeup and prosthetics oh right yeah so they did mm-hmm. yeah which is a nice touch yeah I, I, I quite like that idea still uh, I, this is this is absolutely brilliant absolutely fantastic stuff well worth picking up if you've not done it's available in one of the showcases the DC Comics Presents showcase and there's a brilliant Rich Morrissey text page on the back all about Earth 1 and Earth 2 and the multiverse oh yeah which was a brilliant read uh, I bet you didn't read it did you? I, I didn't absolutely brilliant read um, this is again a 1982 comic because I picked it so it's going to be from the 80s <laughs> more than likely are there any interesting adverts in this one? don't know I didn't spot any. There's a Chuck Norris advert in the... In Is the there film. a Chuck Norris? The Megaforce advert? Yeah. Oh, dear me. A little bit of Chuck Norris. Um, goes a long way. Sergeant Rock. Yeah, there's no, there's no, no interesting adverts in this one. Unlike the Iron Man one, which had some uh, some pretty cool uh, mm-hmm. advertisements. What did you pick, Michael? Uh, well, going left field... Of course. I picked one of a trilogy that started in 2011... Uh, when artist Becky Cloonan began releasing annual self-published one-shots, both written and illustrated by herself, and sold them via her web store or at conventions. And my pick for this week is the first of these three, Wolves, which I picked up at Thought Bubble in 2013. Uh, From what I noticed, the web store versions are larger and feature slightly different cover layouts, uh, whilst the convention variants are smaller A5 size. Although this could be down to printing. It's my copies. The third print from 2012. And signed. And signed, yeah. Okay, and uh, date and thing good for you. What's it called? 
Specialised? No, it's not specialised. Personalised. God, we're stupid. <laughs> and personalised, too, yeah. which I thought was lovely. To my poor monkey, Mike. Becky. That's lovely. Yeah. And she's even dated at 2014. That's lovely. Really nice. Mm-hmm. Wolves has a cover of a lone hunter standing in snow with blood dripping from his sword. And he's leaving a trail of it behind him yeah. as well. Because it's black and white cover with just the red blood being the only colour on it. tones for the background, which yeah. is cool. Yeah, there's lots of shading. Yeah. And if you actually run your hand over it, which I'm surprised you didn't, you can actually feel the ink yeah. on it, which I thought was a nice touch. Mm. Haunted by memories of his lover and the look in her eyes the night before he left, a lone hunter searches the forest for his prey. As the sun sets, he rests and remembers the fear in her eyes as he entered her chamber. As night falls, he continues his hunt and cuts his hand to draw out the beast. As the wolf towers above him, he sees the eyes and the fear inside them. As he fights, he understands why he has a feeling in his stomach, why he hesitates to kill the beast and why the king sent him specifically to kill it. On the edge of a cliff in front of the pale full moon, the hunter strikes with a killing blow. Sunrise comes and the hunter walks back to the village with the body of the wolf wrapped up on his horse. He enters the castle and places the body on the floor before the king's throne. A woman's hand falls out of the cloth as the hunter takes his reward and leaves, banished from the kingdom. As he enters the forest, he removes his clothes and walks, cursed and haunted by memories. Mm. I enjoyed that. Yeah. I, I didn't know what the hell this was. Yeah. I mean, I vaguely remember you mentioning that you'd bought it at Thought Bubble. But uh, the art's really good. I like the, the amount of prints on the first few pages before the actual story kicks in. Yeah, showing the relationship between the two people, the man and the woman. Because mm. uh, obviously she's the werewolf that he's just killed. Yes. That was the twist ending. That was, yeah. yeah the very well, Twilight Zone. Uh, the, the even twistier ending was that like, he's a werewolf now. He's a werewolf now as well because she bit him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was good the artwork's exceptional yeah see I don't know anything about Becky Clune other than she's doing um, Gotham Academy yeah is that the boot she's doing why are you not buying that uh, no money <laughs> should we just get you the trade I'll wait for yeah that's what yeah. I'm doing for Batgirl when it comes out yeah but uh, the artworks particularly the drawings of the princess woman yeah are lovely and the art on her is different than the art on him. The flashbacks, yeah. Different art style. Yeah. Because she says in the back, in the text piece at the back, she has redrawn some panels and added panels and expanded the story and, and what have you. But I, I was pleasantly surprised by that. Mm-hmm. What uh, what episode of previously was, was this uh, saved up for? It wasn't. I said, you know. I know. Yeah. I'm taking the mic. I thought you may have had this for um, Spotlight On. Oh, I thought you made on yeah. Spotlight On, Becky Cloonan. But he didn't. No. So why do you not have any more, more work for him? You buy something from Becky Clunan every time you see her. I do. Because I'm convinced you just like flirting with her. Well, I don't want you to catch on. <laughs> it's a little bit obvious. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. Most things are buy from we can't cover. I mean, I've got a t-shirt, which I love, but you can't talk about that. Why? What's on the t-shirt? Oh, it's one of the prints. She's turned one of the prints into a t-shirt. All right. And I bought one of her prints. You not got it on your wall? No. No room. Oh, right. Okay, that's a shame. Yeah. You only like going to conventions just to get buy stuff off Becky Clooney. I do, yeah. Which is fair enough. Yeah, she, has, she has cool stuff. I enjoyed that. We've not talked about it much because it's only 14 yeah, pages. There's not much to it. There's not a lot to it. It's a little Twilight Zone story. Yeah. With a twist ending mm-hmm. that you kind of see coming. Yeah. But it's quite romantic and dark and squidgy. You know who'd like that? Who? Your mum. Well, she's read it. Oh, shit. Yeah. 
She should have come on the show. I, 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 well, when I got it, I gave it to her. She should come on the show and give us her opinion on it. Because mm-hmm. we never get bored of having a woman's opinion <laughs> on the show. <laughs> had to specify I am so going to pay for that later Uh, alright well that's it for Just Good Comics this week all of them are well worth your time Wolves like Michael said you can pick up from Becky Cluner's website yeah it's well worth it it's a good little read Uh, Superman DC Comics presents annual number one I don't know if it's an expensive back issue like I said I got it for $2 in America Uh, but it is published in one of the showcases and I don't know if the Invincible Iron Man stuff's available anywhere yeah although I suppose it will be now they're doing these new trades that have replaced the Essentials Mm. but Essential Iron Man never got this far so as far as I know that one's not been reprinted anyway next time on an all new episode if hey kids comics just good comics looks at Marvel team up issues 65 and 66 Doctor Strange right issue 56 and whatever the hell it is that Michael brings to the table should I should I reveal it you can reveal it now if you want to uh, the first two chapters of the Japanese horror Uzumaki ooh so a little bit of mainstream a little bit of weirdness then a lot of weirdness yeah yeah <laughs> But that's why we like the show. We're nothing if not eclectic, mm-hmm. aren't we? All right, we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show is not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. That was very uh, BBC4. And we're back with more fun from the four-colour comic book world. Today's stories are from Marvel Comics, The Invincible Iron Man, from DC Comics Presents Superman Meets Superman, and Becky Cloonan's Wolves will give the art-out perspective. Because that's oozing fun. Yeah. Just away our choices. I did, but I'm going to cut that. Okay. I'm going to put it as an outtake at the end. Sometimes things just drive through the crew. <laughs> did you just fart? I timed it. You son of a... <laughs> Never t- You know, last week, I did a show on my own. Can I go back and do that? You windbag. <laughs> It's not very smelly, I'll give it that. There is, yeah, It's yeah. kind of a, kind of a feeble fire. <laughs> not like mine. Back in! <laughs> oh, can, wait. I, can I carry on? Yeah, that's not a fart. <laughs> Did you just follow through? Don't. Don't you be giving me no turtle heads. Ah. Oh, sit on a cigar, yeah, let's hurry this up. <laughs>